0: Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Streaming live at wordradio.com.
1: You're listening to The Source with Andrea Laffle Sanders on Word Radio.
0: Streaming live on wordradio.com
1: and the Word Radio app. I have here. Savage Sisters Recoveries founder and executive director Sarah Laurel, who created Savage Sisters and its programming, after she overcame her traumatic battle with substance use disorder and homelessness. After years of being shuffled through the system, she found herself in a wheelchair and once again being offered substandard care. What began as a desire to have one safe home for a couple of women grew organically over the past five years. Today, Savage Sisters has 11 recover. Eleven. You better go, Sarah. Eleven recovery homes, uh, drop-in center, weekly street-based outreaches, and nationwide overdose reversal and harm reduction trainings. Good morning, my sister, and thank you for joining us on The Source. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you're welcome. I know it's been a little bit of a trepidation for you, but Lisa told you right. I am, I am one of the, the, the things that I love about doing what I do is that when I interview people, I do it with grace and love and, and there is no gotcha moments on my show. Not one. OK, so we're going to go ahead and have this conversation. We have been talking about Kensington. Um, folks have been calling into the radio station talking about, you know, people have uh, flesh eating bacteria, uh, you know, um, uh, lot, all sorts of things going on over there that the CDC has been there. Uh, we need to know. And so it it was important for me to get you on the air so we could talk about what exactly is happening in Kensington. Can you tell us from your your point of view, your vantage point, what's been going on in Kensington? And thank you for being on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. So
0: I began doing the outreach... From my stoop in Kensington, just kind of, it was a heavily drug trafficked corner and there was a lot of survivor sex workers there. So I would sit on the stoop and I would engage with my friends that were still using substances. And we started seeing wounds pop up. And so after, you know, doing a little bit of digging, we found out that there was an adulterant in the drug supply called xylazine. It's an alpha 2 agonist, it's actually an animal grade tranquilizer. When it first came into the supply, it was adulterating the fentanyl supply, and to date, in those past you know five years, it is now the ninety nine percent of the dope supply. And when we saw that that supply switched um, to being you know one part fentanyl to up to a thousand parts of xylazine we saw some really negative public health consequences. We saw the wounds on individuals, prolonged sedation. Um, it was difficult to reverse those overdoses. So Savage Sisters very organically reached out to friends in the community, and a lot of nurses and doctors started coming down. We fundraised for a drop-in center because one of the most difficult things for the 800 unhoused individuals in Kensington is there's no public restrooms or showers. So that's what we do at our drop-in. It's very small and we definitely can't meet the needs of 800 individuals, but we do what we can and we do the showers and the wound care to help, you know, mitigate the harms caused to society and the community through that um, public health crisis.
1: Tara, we heard that the wounds uh, have gotten so bad that it's starting to eat into the flesh. Is that true?
0: Yes, I wouldn't say that it eats into the flesh. It it causes vasoconstriction, which means less blood flow. Mm-hmm. And it's more difficult, you know, if you're unhoused, you don't have running water, and you might have some other complications, maybe HIV or hep C or diabetes. So, those wounds will continue to grow as they continue to consume xylazine. And once they get infected, it, you know, obviously that worsens. So, we do see individuals on a daily basis at our storefront that have open, um, ulcers on their arms. Some are infected, some aren't. Um, we've seen it as bad as down to the bone with, uh, muscle and tissue exposed and, there's a lot of complications. We've seen a lot of amputations. Uh, so it's definitely a public health crisis at this point. And the, the drug supply is toxic.
1: So there, I, I have to ask you this question about the drug supply. It used to be heroin and fentanyl. Is, is there no more? There's no more heroin and that's dried up in the drug supply system. There's no heroin,
0: really. Um, there is fentanyl. Mm-hmm. So and it's kind of, there's so many things that kind of play into the drug supply, but there was an article that was released that people can reference. Uh, The Colombian government actually got together years ago and said, producing heroin is causing a lot of economic stress to our country. And they decided that they didn't want to produce it as much because, you know, when they would try to destroy those poppy plants, they were also negatively impacting the entire environment, the uh, you know, coffee plantations and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it became an elite drug. They stopped producing it at high rates. They replaced it with fentanyl because it was more potent and it was manufactured and easier to traffic and things like that. So it just made more financial sense for drug traffickers. Mm-hmm. We saw fentanyl enter the supply and then we saw the criminal drug market try to add different adulterants to extend the high, let's say, or the euphoric feeling with different substances. Xylazine was one of them. And for whatever reason, in Philadelphia, it became the epicenter for it. Um, The drug supply obviously is not regulated. So we're at the mercy of whatever uh, dealers want to put into it. And it makes a lot of sense. It wasn't a regulated substance. It's incredibly cheap. Um, I've heard $6 a kilo. And that is... $6 six dollars a kilo it's yeah it's it's a veterinary substance that they use okay. in, sorry medicine so it made a lot of sense for the criminal drug market you know they're there to make money nobody asked for it people that are consuming substances and and purchasing from the street drug supply they're not going to a dealer and saying hey what's in this mm-hmm. you know you don't get a list of ingredients so before they knew it they were now addicted or chemically dependent on a substance that that had a lot of negative physical and um, health consequences.
1: So uh, Mayor Sherelle Parker ran on uh, one of the things she talked about as she was running for mayor in the city of Philadelphia is that she would clean up Kensington. What have you seen happening since she became mayor of the city? Is there anything going on that uh, heartens you or concerns you? What's happening over there now? There's a both
0: at, at the, you know, at the end of the day. And I think that this has just been an ongoing narrative. Kensington has been this way. Obviously it's exaggerated currently, but it's been decades. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen a lot of police sweeps. We've seen strike force out, which obviously the residential community there deserves a safe location to live and to raise their families. So I understand that there is going to be some for some sense of enforcement that has to take place in order to regain some control of that area. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, there hasn't been a lot of open communication with the groups that have been there within the community. Um, some have been there for decades as well. And so I think that everybody is kind of taking a step back and saying, how much of this is going to help and how much of this could be potentially harmful to both the residential and the unhoused community. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think for us losing our lease and having to relocate and having to be flexible and creative about the way that we serve, we're just one organization. But how is this going to impact
1: harm reduction and public health within this community as a whole? Right. So when you lost your lease, what did they tell you? Why did they say you were losing your lease? So shift capital... Didn't give us a reason. The email that they sent said,
0: we are a real estate development company. We are looking for new energy in that building. And fine. Um, But I had a meeting on January 26th with Ketsi Lazada and her team. And I brought my team into that meeting. And she, you know, I started the meeting saying, I understand, you know, the Parker administration is going to do law enforcement and Savage Sisters wants to help in the best way that we can. And she said, I'm just going to let you know, I want you out of Kensington. I'm going to do everything in my power to get you removed from my corridor and all of harm reduction. And I was a bit taken aback and I didn't think that she would publicly admit to that, but she did on multiple media outlets. And so now the concern is overall for the community. It's not just, she doesn't like Savage Sisters. We'll just keep it moving. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems that she is very intent on interrupting services within that community.
1: What will happen if they do a clean sweep and move, where would they move all the folks that are sitting in Kensington? Now, let's just say they get what they want and they do a clean sweep of of Kensington. Based on someone who was impacted years ago and what you saw there, who are the people that are in that area that are are on drugs? Is there, uh, is it, uh, using substances? Is it uh, that they've had trauma? Is it from some sort of pain that turned into drug use? Is it, what is it? What are you, Who are the people that you're seeing, that we are seeing every day in those Kensington corridors? What, what do we need to know about them? Because people are saying, we need to bring the National Guard, et cetera, et cetera. But what I know about substance <clears throat> abuse is, especially something like this, where it's so highly addictive, you can't just come off. If we could do that, we wouldn't have this issue all across the country, right? So what do we need to know? Give us a synopsis of who these people are in that corridor. What do we need to know about them based on the work that you've done with Savage Sisters? Oh, well, they're
0: they're your friends. They're your neighbors. They're your community members. They're county kids. They're moms, dads, brothers, sisters. They're uh, individuals who got stuck on a substance and this cycle is really difficult to break out of, I would say incredibly intensified by xylosine because we are not treating it during the acute withdrawal stage. So your recidivism rates are through the roof. Your retention rates are incredibly low, meaning all those fancy words just mean nobody's going to stay in rehab if they're super uncomfortable, if they're in a lot of pain. Um, And to your question, if we move all of those people if we migrate all of our friends that are experiencing these you know they're experiencing homelessness in addition to substance use or chemical dependency that just relocates the issue right. that isn't a solution to anything the biggest concern that i have is that you know i've, I've had contact with puerto rico where xylosine started in the early 2000s um They report that during the acute withdrawal stage while incarcerated, people die. So this is a potentially lethal withdrawal. And if you're talking about bringing in enforcement as a strategy, arresting, let's say, upwards of 800 800 people from that community and sending them to the Roundhouse and State Road... You're going to be looking at a lot of people dying. Um, you know, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, Dr. Gupta released an op ed, and in there he said, You're 124 times more likely to experience an overdose within the first two weeks of getting released mm-hmm. from a jail. So when you talk about migrating these individuals and sweeping the streets, that's law enforcement. Unless you're putting them, where else are you going to put them? Um, it, mass incarceration has never worked.
1: And, and with Hep C, HIV, these open wounds, let's talk about what that would do to the community at large. What, 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 what's happening there? How do we navigate through that? And the, the, the other question I have for you is because we've been talking about this for years. Is there any possible way for folks to fully get clean and stay clean? And what would it cost to do that? How would You were able to do it. Um, uh, you know, we have other folks that we know that have been clean for years and years and years. But what would it take? What is the machinations that's required to get folks to completely get off of these drugs?
0: People have to want it. (laughs) And so you can have this great formula. You can arrest them. You can send them to jail. I've been to jail. I never stayed off substances when I was released. I immediately went back and used. It was a new set of trauma that I experienced during my time in jail And it was a new set of barriers to my recovery journey because then you have warrants and you have to deal with the counties and the parole and the judicial system. And it can be very overwhelming. So it literally just compounds the issues of, you know, coming out of homelessness, dealing with substance use, going through the acute withdrawal stages, and then also having to potentially go to jail sober. So um, it it does compound the issues. Um, I think individuals... There is a such thing as autonomy. And when it comes, there's this moral debate when it comes to drug use in this country. There's good drugs and there's bad drugs Mm -hmm. and there's judgment and there's stigma. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately, this is a space where... We do have to you know, step back and understand that no matter what we do, mm-hmm. um, people do have to make that decision on their own. Catsy Lozada said she wanted to move people around. I mean, that's why they're moving these encampments on a regular basis. She said she wants to make them uncomfortable. And that blows me away. Do you not realize how uncomfortable they already are? Comfort has never been a something that they experience while being homeless with you know, ulcers on their skin and chemically dependent on a substance that is causing them great harm. Comfort is not something that they experience. Even if I give them a blanket and a sandwich, it's freezing. They have to deal with the elements. They have these wounds. There is no level of comfort that they experience. So, it's an odd um, narrative.
1: Sarah, (laughs) We all know about the crack cocaine era in the eighties, right? And that people were swept up and locked up and locked up for years on end. We lost a lot of families, uh, uh, specifically families of color have are still, uh, feeling the ramifications of that. What's different about this than it was in the, in the crack era, uh, when all of this stuff was gone? What's different now that we, you know, because people are asking, what what can, what why is this so different now than it was in the 80s, right? And what did it take for you to get clean? What 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 was the thing that pushed you into getting clean? Maybe that can help someone who's listening now.
0: For sure. I think what's different now is that it's more people are affected by it. It's not isolated. And I say this when I do my trainings all the time. The wrong kids died. <laughs> And that's sad that this country operates in that, in that way, but at a certain point. Certain people started dying, and they started paying attention to it. You know, we had the so when, right so,
1: the so when the white children started dying, then they hundred percent, yeah, oh yeah, hundred yeah. okay. yeah. percent, yeah, it's yeah. absolutely, it's awful to say, but yeah. you know that's absolutely, it is the truth, intense. it is absolutely truth, and I, no, you not. know, I've I've done work in counties where, uh, and again, I'm going to protect the innocent, where they've said, you know, they've had to lock their bedroom doors, uh, you know, their family members are you know stealing everything, and so the families ran and. A lot of them ended up in Kensington, Mm -hmm. right? Um, A lot of them have died. I talked to one mother who said all six of her sons are hooked. On, on substance abuse and as she was telling me the story she just cried right so the, what what the people in philadelphia are saying is why isn't this happening in the counties why are they why is it allowed to happen here in philadelphia and i can tell them that it's because they they, they couldn't stay in the county they were not comfortable they just ran to where the where the drugs were freely accessible for them because it wasn't as accessible in the counties which is why they ended up where they did so what is the happy medium now for us how did you get clean You know, what, what happened for you that you were able to get clean? I, so when I got into my recovery journey, it wasn't
0: even intentional. It was, Mm -hmm. I got, I went out of a window in Kensington. I was staying in a trap house, got into a fight with a couple of poppies and I was in, I had to get metal put in my leg. I was in a wheelchair, you know, my leg was separated from my hip bone. So I was stuck in the hospital for a long period of time. I had three surgeries. um, And I had all intention of getting out of that hospital as soon as my leg healed, I was going to go back to Kensington and get high. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, you know, I was given this opportunity and two of my friends that I had gone, I had been in jail with were both at the same time. It was like the three of us together Mm -hmm. um, just trying to, you know, get our lives together. And we had this house, you know, When I was thrown out of the window, I had a dress that said Savage. That's where the name comes from. And we, we, you know, we just kind of helped each other every single day. It wasn't this aha moment. I, you know, the Lord didn't appear for me. Mm -hmm. Allah didn't come through the clouds. I Mm -hmm. put one day next to another and slowly, but surely I turned around and I think I had 90 days and I was like, oh, wow, I've not been off of drugs for this long ever. and. I did a multitude of different things to heal. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I did therapy, which my mom made me do. Yep. And I didn't, you know, I had to address some of the trauma when you're an unhoused woman in Kensington, you go through significant different levels of trauma. And so I had to address that. Um, And there was this kind of, you know, enforcement through 12 steps that you had to like find God. My Father's Muslim and my mother's Catholic. So I had this conflicting issue with right, that. Right. Um, and they were both like stoic in their religions. <laughs> so I had to separate myself from that and I had to go internal and I had to find whatever source I could. Um, and and it was like a really big healing journey. That is different for every single person. I don't think that there is some great solution to it. I think the person has to be willing. Um, to sit still long enough through the discomfort um, and kind of have had enough. I also don't think that everybody will get sober or ah, stop right. using drugs. You know, I don't think that that should be a requirement. Some people stop doing an opioid, but drink successfully or, mm-hmm. you know, smoke marijuana or medicinally or do the things like that. I'm abstinent. That's my choice. Mm-hmm. But I think that this, the scale of, you know, what recovery looks like needs to be revisited just, you know, as a whole, because there is an unrealistic abstinence based um, thought process that people have from the drug era. You know, you got no drugs for the rest of your life. That's Just
1: unrealistic.
0: say no. Just say no. Just say no was a terrible, terrible um, government implemented
1: program. Mm-hmm. Sarah, I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back uh, for the final part of this interview, I'd like to ask you, what roles do families play in this? Right. Um, let's talk about that because we're just seeing, uh, you know, uh, the folks in Kensington as, as, and, and listen, but for the, it could have been any one of us. I learned that from going through courses and listening to people talking. One bad move in your family, something going on, you know, could land you in that place. And so I, 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 I want the people of Kensington to have safe corridors and passageways. But I also know that even what, what you don't see in Kensington is happening in far too many homes that nobody is talking about. Right. That people are trying to navigate and deal with this. So when we come back, I'd like you to talk to me a little bit about what roles do families play or should play in all of this? Because um, we keep a lot of secrets. Right. And then by the time we for- realize that the secret is happening It's just too far gone. And then we turn our backs and it's just this snowballing thing. Hold on one second, please. You are listening to the source on WURD, Progressive Black Talk Media on air and online at wordradio.com. I am Andrea Lawful Sanders. We will be back with Sarah Laurel from Savage Sisters right after these messages. You're listening to The Source with Andrea Lawful Sanders on Word Radio. Streaming
0: live on wordradio.com and the Word
1: Radio app. Welcome back to The Source on WURD, Progressive Black Talk Media, on air and online at wordradio.com. If you're just joining us, I am Andrea Lawful Sanders, your host. Mondays through Fridays from 5 to 7 a.m. I am having a compelling conversation with Sarah Laurel from Savage Sisters. Um... It is a conversation of understanding, of seeking to understand where people are coming from so that we can address the issues that are happening not just in Kensington, but around the country. And so when we went to break, I asked her to tell me, what roles do we think families play um, in, in, in this, right? Um, why do you think all of this is happening right now? Where, where are the families in, in this? And the other question I answered during the break was, is it an open drug air market or is, is, it, is it happening another way? Wait till you hear her answer. I was like, yep, go ahead, Sarah. What role do you think families play in this? Uh, well, I think
0: families are the first to be connected to it. They're the first ones to see it. They're the first on the line of defense when it comes to trauma And, you know, chaotic drug use that can potentially turn into something dangerous. I think there's a lot of stigma from years of drug war propaganda. And so a lot of times families will say, you know, they have those jokes where like alcohol is a drug, right? So they have like the... The silly ant that drinks too much. Like it's acceptable. Nobody steps in when there's harmful, chaotic, you know, drinking. But when it's substance use, it's shamed. It's hidden. It's secret. And that creates a problem for everyone. What a lot of people don't realize is that eight out of 10 overdose deaths happen in a home <laughs> because there isn't a communication between people who use drugs. And their family members saying, hey, I use these substances. There's no understanding or kind of non-judgmental space where they can say, check on me, um, you know, make sure I'm OK. A lot of it is being forced into the corner. You're being forced to isolate in order to use. And that creates unsafe spaces for people who use drugs, which increases overdose um, deaths. So I think that at some point. You know, rather than everybody kind of talking behind the individual's back, let's have this open dialogue. People use drugs every day in different ways for different reasons, recreationally, socially, experimentally, um, every single day. People drink every day. They have a glass of wine with dinner. Um, you know, th- people use on a continuum. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we need to start having those conversations and we need to step away from that that stigma centered you know, drugs are bad. Okay. Because they're not all bad. You can use safely. People drink safely on a daily basis. And if we could open that dialogue to be inclusive of other substances, Mm -hmm. um, then we could create safer spaces for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as an open air drug market, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's an open air drug market. You can walk down any block at any time and get any substance that you want. There's no... You don't need to call anybody. In fact, I don't think I ever had a phone number for somebody selling when I was um, you know, purchasing substances in Kensington. It still operates in that way. Each corner does a different thing. They have stamps and that's how it works. Everybody that comes to Kensington knows it's an open air drug market. You can cop and roll, you can cop and stay. Um, in 2019, they actually... And then with COVID happening, it really intensified the situation because nobody you weren't touching people, you know, you were keeping six feet away. Um, But everyone began kind of using openly in a much more higher rate. And then you saw xylose even come in with the wounds. So now you just have this open air drug market, a large community of individuals consuming publicly. And you have a a large percentage of those individuals with open um, ulcers on their skin. So it's a very scary kind of dynamic.
1: When I drove through Kensington more than once in the last few years, my friend Lorraine Ballard-Mora was the first one that alerted me to it. And she said, I need you to just come with me. And we went and we saw, I saw a lot of, and and I've been there three or four times since then, I saw a lot of uh, Mercedes and BMWs. You live there. What's happening?
0: So there's different groups of individuals that come to Kensington. Some people come for the drug market and some people come for the sex trafficking market. And there's a lot of individuals that are survivor sex workers. And we call them that because they're doing this work to survive. Um, they're going to put themselves in a lot higher risk situations. And I used to sit, my corner was heavily trafficked. And, you know, the people coming in there come in between five and eight AM. They're on their way to center city to go to, on their way to center city to go to work or they're tradesmen, you know, that work in the unions and they're pulling up in nice vehicles and, you know, they're picking, they're picking somebody up and they're doing their business. Mm -hmm. Um, these aren't neighborhood individuals. It's not the residential community in Kensington that is, you know, soliciting the survivor sex workers, which I find to be incredibly interesting too, because when we talk about suspending services, such as syringe programs and and harm reduction organizations that help lower the risk of infectious diseases spreading, it doesn't just happen for drug users or people in Kensington. What about the men and the women that are coming down and hiring sex workers who may potentially be infected? And then you're taking
1: that home to Delaware County or Bucks County Mm -hmm. or Montgomery County or wherever it is. Right. Right. Oh my gosh. This was such an amazing interview. I want to thank you for having the courage to come and have this conversation with me. I wanted people to hear you in a way that was not clouded with, oh, but what about this? And what about that? I allowed you to tell your story clearly and concisely so folks can understand exactly what is happening in Kensington. How can people reach you if they want to talk to you? Um, reach out on the website, savagesisters.org,
0: uh, info at savagesisters.org. We're on all social media platforms and we're in Kensington with our building till September. Oh. <laughs> then we
1: go mobile. Okay. All right, we'll do thank you so much Sarah Laurel. I would love to come and meet you personally. So I'll talk to, I'll talk to our mutual friends so we can make that happen so I can learn more. As I learn more, I'm able to, you know, discuss more with all of you. Thank you so so much for being thank willing you. to have this much needed conversation today.
0: Have Absolutely. A- have a good day. You too, bye.